everyone, and welcome to Conversations Podcast. Before we start, uh, please don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. Today, I'm with Associate Professor Holly Seal, who is an infectious disease social scientist at the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. She is one of the developers of the COVID-19 glossary, which was launched by New South Wales Health in July 2021. Welcome, Holly, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, and hi, everybody. It's lovely to be here. Um, congratulations on the launch of the COVID-19 glossary. Um, tell us, what is the COVID-19 glossary and why did you find the need to develop it and what does it aim to do? Yeah, look, we have been doing research um, focused on vaccine acceptance and uptake amongst migrants and refugees for many, many years, working with colleagues at the University of New South Wales and with other universities around Australia that we knew that even before COVID, that there had been disparities, so differences in vaccine coverage amongst uh, people who are Australian-born and those who are born overseas. And so we had concerns that that would also be the issue when it came to the rollout and, and delivery of the COVID vaccines themselves. And so after undertaking, you know, a large number of interviews with different stakeholders around Australia, including people working in government and non-government organisations around multicultural health, refugee health and, um, and other others in the sector, we identified that there was uh, a gap in the kind of confidence um, and understanding of people in the sector around, you know, the kind of terminology or, or better word, jargon around mm. these vaccines. And that's totally understandable. You know, I think for all of us, we've really had to shift, you know, our, our understanding and also certainly, you know, our, our language when it came to the introduction of these COVID vaccines. You know, they, they've they've got new terms, new phrases, new, you know, new, uh, you know, words that, you know, we just haven't used before when it came to immunisation. And so what we wanted to do was to, to, to support those speaking COVID or having to talk about these COVID vaccines. Um, and so that is really where the glossary comes in. It includes all of the terminology, the, 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 the kind of jargon around the, the vaccines in terms of development, um, in terms of their um, use in the community, around the different safety um, aspects that have been coming out. And the glossary really aims to kind of break down that medical terminology in a way that would then help someone integrate um, the 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 term or the the different phrase into everyday language. I mean, you're you're right in saying that um, culturally and linguistically diverse people might not have access to this information in their language, let's say. Um, but uh, you know, literacy and health literacy—they're different things, aren't they? Even even speakers of English, you know, with their mother tongue, they they find it very hard to understand all this language around COVID nineteen and mRNA and what's a spike protein you know it's not stuff that we hear every day or we didn't anyway 
I have an undergraduate degree in, in biomedical science and I still can't remember all of these different terms because we don't use them. You know, we, we forget about them. You know, they they either go out of our, our everyday language and, and, and that's, you know, to be fair, we, we other things, you know, we need to focus on other things or they may be very new terms for people. And so, you know, this glossary is for anyone who is trying to communicate um, in, in their own community. And so it is, you know, we, we appreciate that, you know, across all sectors, that health literacy is um, an ongoing issue and that about 60% of our communities have, you know, lower levels of health literacy. And so that's the, the capacity to, to process information about um, health issues or about medical um, um, data or, or, you know, about accessing a medical care. And so what we want to do is, is try and, you know, come up with a way that within our, you know, oral communication or in the documents or communication um, pieces that we're producing that we really, you know, use words that are much more familiar, you know, help us to, to understand each of these different um, terms. And uh, how many languages is the glossary available in? Yeah, at the moment we've got it in simplified English and then we've got it in another 29 different languages, which I'm so proud to see um, and was really, you know, the work of, uh, you know, a, a range of different people, including Lisa Woodland at New South Wales Multicultural um, Communication Unit. Um, it was also supported by um, Refugee Health up at New South Wales and others. And and But I'm hoping that this isn't it, that we will get further support to expand the number of languages that the glossary is available because, you know, that's it, it's one thing to have it in, in simplified English, but we understand that it is, you know, much more useful to the sector if it is available in, in their own language. And, you know, as part of that process, you know, the, the, the different teams involved with this, you know, have, have called on the, you know, the support and, and time of a range of different people to make sure that, you know, when it did come to, to translating um, the, the, the simplified terms, that we still got the, the, the right feel for them and that they were medically correct, but that they also use words that are, that are relevant to the community. Did you get feedback from the translators? Did they find the simplified version easier to translate? Oh, they were tough on me. They were very tough. They kept coming back and saying, Holly, you know, this 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 phrasing isn't working or, you know, mm. how do we build this into our conversation? It just doesn't feel authentic. And and certainly, um, you know, I was hearing it from both sides. So, you know, I, because these are immunisation terms and they are medical terms, you know, it's really important that they are correct because we don't want, we've got enough misinformation already out there in the community we don't want to be contributing to that and we really want to build people's understanding of these vaccines because that helps people trust and and feel confident in what they're receiving and so you know working with you know people who are you know working every day as, as translators and interpreters um, people who are working within multicultural communication units and also those who are working at either the kind of development stage of, in, of vaccines or who are involved with the development of policy around vaccines, mm. 
we got a lot of different input into them, um, into the development. That's great. I mean, it, this is a great tool, but it's it's one of the many tools with uh, the education of the communities, isn't it, of the public. Um, so, you know, we can't put all the responsibility on this one glossary. It's not just about terms and definitions. You know, people need to be educated on all these matters and not just uh, COVID-19 and vaccination, but many other health issues as well. Um, but, uh, yes, it does play a, a quite an important role, but it is not the only tool when it comes to education. No, that's certainly it. And and we like I would personally like to acknowledge all the fabulous and, and you know great initiatives that have been um used already out there in the sector. You know, the opportunity I've had to speak to to different stakeholders who support their communities in, in different ways and, and to hear about the phone calls they've been doing, about the Zoom um, sessions they've been running, about, you know, going into their community and dropping off food parcels to mm. those in need. You know, I've been humbled to hear about all of those. And, and I think the, 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 the you know, as, as I've been trying to do is shout that from the rooftops when people say, oh, but what's being done in community there is keeps being done in community and and what we need to do now is just to continue to support those efforts um you know talking about immunization is not an easy thing um you know people in primary care so doctors and nurses in primary care and in other health settings you know they receive a lot of training um to talk about immunization but they also do it day in day out mm. and so they've worked out the kind of strategies that that help or, or the, the approaches that support people um, to, to accept a vaccine. But what we're doing at the moment is calling on a much wider number of people out there in the community to also be vaccine ambassadors. And, and that's, that's great because when it comes to adults um, receiving vaccines, we know that you know, they may not necessarily always get a vaccine via um, a GP. They mm-hmm. may get vaccinated in their workplaces. They may get vaccinated in um, pharmacy settings or, or, you know, elsewhere in the community. And so, you know, these people may not necessarily have a habit of going to a doctor to ask questions about immunisation. There may be others also who are reluctant to go near um a doctor's surgery because of that fear of of being exposed to to COVID. And so, you know, how do we get, you know, information out to these community members? What opportunities do we give them to ask questions um, or to raise any concerns? And this is where the government, the Australian government and, and others have really been highlighting that, you know, community leaders, faith-based leaders, but also a wider network of people, including settlement workers, case workers, um, multilingual um, health workers. You know, they play such a role mm. at the moment with being that connecting point into community. And so, you know, taking on that that role, you know, in such a positive way is, is fabulous. And you know, we've been asking so much of these um, community leaders so far during this pandemic to to promote, you know, their understanding around, uh, you know, hygiene, around mask use, around the lockdowns. You know, again and again, we ask them to to be that that piece of the puzzle, you know, in, in making sure communication gets through. But we've asked them again to, to, to talk about the vaccination. And so, 
what we're trying to do, you know, is is give them the tools that they can use to help firstly, you know, support their own understanding Mm -hmm. about these vaccines, make sure that they feel confident in what they're saying, um, and then also then give them the tools to then go out into community to deliver, you know, messages or to answer questions in a way that will have impact. And so we're up here in New South Wales running training sessions at the moment with a range of different community advocates and and leaders and and other um, stakeholders to help with that um, confidence building. And and those training sessions have also been run in Victoria um, and, and elsewhere around Australia. And so what we need to make sure and call on the government really is to make sure that you know, anyone who wants to um, receive this sort of training has the opportunity to because, you know, if you, um, you know, if, if we're calling on these stakeholders to be advocates, then let's resource them and, and provide them the tools to go and do that. I think everyone's working really hard, all the communities, community leaders, researchers like yourself, GPs, you know, everyone who can is helping out at the moment. And um, especially these days, I think um, we're all playing a little bit catch up as well. And uh, the government's doing, both state and federal governments are doing the best they can too, um, uh, I believe. Uh, So, you know, hopefully uh, there is a little bit more traction uh, everything moves a little faster and uh, people actually have access to the information uh, that they need to get so that they can make up their minds uh, in the right way. Um, well, in your research, did you have a look? Um, uh, we all know that uh, there's vaccine hesitancy among the Australian population at the moment uh, for, it could be for whatever reason, you know, lack of information, some certain maybe eccentric beliefs that they might have, if I may say that. Um would you say that uh, hesitancy is higher within the culturally and linguistically diverse communities? Did you did your research give any indications of that? So it's important to note here that um, when it comes to COVID vaccine acceptance, that we think around 70% of the community, and this is all of the community in Australia, um, are really willing to, to go up and, and get the vaccine. And that's fabulous. You know, this is this is the group that, um, you know, have already, you know, made up their minds, perhaps have already received two doses, maybe have received one dose. Um, and waiting waiting that, for that vaccine now. <laughs> they're on that journey. And that's, that's really lovely because they themselves also will become advocates. Um, following behind them, there's this group of about 15% of the population who are, I like to call um, fence sitters. So the people that may not yet have decided which way to, to go. And, and, and this term hesitancy keeps being used. And, um, and that's, you know, and that's an official term, but it's, you know, is it helping right now? So I'm mm. just wanting to, to call them the fence sitters. We, you know, we, we are wanting to work with that group um, to bring them along. And for many of them, it is about safety. Um, so having those those questions or concerns about the safety of the vaccines. Um, And so as part of the training and as part of conversations we've been having with community is to make sure people understand that we, um, you know, we are tracking the safety of the vaccines um, and there's great websites available that you can see real-time data on about the the localised or more kind of effects of the body that you get straight after the vaccine. And I had mm. my um, 
one of my doses this weekend and certainly, you know, felt, I felt achy. I felt tired. Mm, I, you know, I needed to have a bit of a lie down, but, you know, with two kids and, and everything else happening, I, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. So I pushed on, which was probably not what I should have done, but you know, that's it. I, you know, I'm sharing my experiences because, you know, this is, this is what happens, but we have that bit of myth out there at the moment that we have these kind of so-called long-term effects. Um, and these, you know, this is this has been building a bit of confusion in the community that, you know, because these vaccines have only been available for a short term, we don't know, um, you know, what what could be the the impact on people down the track or down later in the time. Mm. But what I'd like to 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 reassure the community on is that, you know what we know historically about all of the vaccines that we've introduced over the years for those for kids those for adults all the way back and and probably even further back um to you know the 1960s when we first started using the oral polio vaccine mm. is that if we're going to see some sort of um event or effect of vaccination that it comes quite quickly it comes within the first couple of months and, you know, if we now think about that situation and, and the history of vaccination, we have had that exact issue with these vaccines. And so we had the issue of the clots come show up quite quickly. Mm. After that kind of two-month period, none of the history, none of the vaccines we've um, introduced over the history of vaccination have shown any sort of long-term effects because the way the vaccines work and the way they work in your body, you are more likely to have a more immediate effect. Um, and so that's a really important myth that we need to break down. And so that is definitely causing some people to be uncertain about vaccination um, and, and people, you know, those who may be sitting back and thinking, well, do I really, you know, feel that the vaccine is is safe? Then those are the ones who need to go and have um, a chat with their doctor or a health professional about to be able to work out um, what is the risk of COVID versus what is the the, the potential for the effects of the vaccine. And um, and there's some nice um, again tools available and, and information on the websites where you can see information visually. Um, or there's, you know, tools where you can, you know, compare, you know, the, the, the pros and cons. So we call it a decision guide um, to help you break down. But what I want to do in terms of break, bust a myth is this kind of sentiment that, you know, vaccine um, hesitancy or this uncertainty is greater amongst culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Mm. Historically, again, from all of the research that we have done over the years, talking to um, migrants to Australia, talking to refugee um, groups, you know, what, all of the sentiments that come from those populations is that they are strong believers in the need for vaccination, that they are advocates of vaccination. Um, and often they can come and be actually overly um, immunised when they first arrived to Australia as compared to other Australians because of that process of migration. Mm -hmm. And 
what the challenge is often and where we see then gaps emerge between um, migrants and non-migrants to Australia in vaccine uptake is usually because of other elements. And that may be because of um, the challenges with accessing healthcare because of language, um, the issues of accessing immunisation services because of the costs um, and and time and, and other elements, and not necessarily because they don't believe in the vaccine. That's right. And now, when you say that word hesitancy, it's not like these people are really hesitant. We maybe have to look at that as a noun and not as a verb. Um, like you said, uh, you know, they might not even know anything about it. So we can't just say, oh, these people are hesitant, you know. Yep. We need to we need to really keep working with community to understand what is happening in community. And, and certainly everything I'm hearing from the community leaders that I'm speaking to talks to ongoing issues with accessing the vaccines, um, or, but also about just navigating the booking system. And mm-hmm. so actually being able to, to work through the system, it is now available in, in other languages, which is great. Um, however, that vaccine eligibility checker, there are still gaps in the process. Um, and so depending on the software you use to um, book your appointment, you may still end up having to um, cross the system and use another system that's only available in English. Or you get to the long, you know, convoluted consenting mm. process, which, you know, is a lot of information in English. Or, you know, if you try and navigate through the um, the mass vaccine booking systems you know there's a lot of points on the journey it wasn't easy to book mine I will tell you that I've heard that so many times and and even myself I know I went through a mass vaccine clinic and it kept saying to me oh your appointment hasn't been booked and I thought that's very strange because you've just sent me an email saying my appointment's been booked so the system wasn't talking to each other, you know, on that day. So I just, you know, we know that there is certainly um, flaws. And, you know, to try and, you know, um, help community to, to, to navigate these systems, you know, I've been hearing about some great um, initiatives being used. And, and one I'd like to draw attention to is um, something happening down in South Australia where the, the health department set up um, uh, pop-up booths at local shopping centres so that people would, it's not about receiving the vaccine, but just about helping them to navigate the booking mm. system. So That's they're a like, great um, idea. Yeah, like hotel concierges, you know, they're there to, you know, to, te- to, to just walk you through that booking system. And, you know, if that was available, you know, in in, in areas where, People are not as mobile, you know, people are, you know, having trouble with with getting through the the technology side of things too, you know, that may help. You know, I I certainly applaud the efforts up here in New South Wales about getting pop-up clinics available in um, community centres, in faith-based centres. That is fabulous. And, and, you know, the, the lovely stories that we're hearing from those centres, you know, really are worth repeating. And and one story I saw the other day on Facebook was about a young um, couple 
who walked into one of the um, pop-up clinics for their AstraZeneca doses um, in, uh, I, I'm not sure what suburb it was in, but in one of the areas where there is increased transmission at the moment in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And this young couple went and got their vaccines on their wedding anniversary. So most other people would think about, you know, maybe a, a nice dinner at home, and this couple instead thought, let's go and get vaccinated. And what was important here is that their reason for getting vaccinated wasn't necessarily because they um, identified themselves at high at, at an increased risk, but instead they said that they wanted to have more wedding anniversaries down the track. And that was it. That was their reason and, and the factor that motivated them to go and get vaccinated. And um, I love stories like that. I think I would love to see them at the 11 o'clock press conferences, standing there telling everybody their story. But I've heard others who have said, you know, we should be promoting um, the need to get vaccinated because, you know, there are small businesses out there that are really failing to, to keep yeah. open. And how do we get these small business owners to, to be front and centre of this campaign and say, I'm getting vaccinated because I need my business to, to, to reopen. And so, so many stories out there and so many reasons why people are motivated to go and get these vaccines. And, and we want to help all of those people to, to get to a clinic um, and to get their story out. And so, you know, I encourage um, people who, who do go and get vaccinated to share their experiences with their family and friends because there is misinformation out there. There are certainly um, rumours out there um, circulating about the vaccines and about, you know, mm. other, other issues during the pandemic. Um, and the, the, the best way to, to counter some of this is to tell your own experiences because you're more likely to trust what your family and friends did. And if they had a, a positive experience through the booking system and through the clinic um, and afterwards, you know, you're going to feel more comfortable to to also go and do that. And uh, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom about the whole thing at the moment. And and yes, you know, it is it is it is definitely depressing with all these numbers and all the lockdowns and everything. Um, but but you're right. I think we're focusing a lot on the negative. We see case numbers. We see number of vaccinations, or, or we're just focusing on how much uh, we need. There isn't enough vaccinations. Um, there's lack of information, but there is also a lot of people getting vaccinated. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for these people to come out and say how they did it, maybe show the way um, and, and uh, you know, share their experiences and talk about why they got the vaccine, like you were saying. And, and, and you're right, uh, you know, people want to have more anniversaries. They want to be able to get married so they can have anniversaries. You know, I was reading today um, in Victoria uh, just before, an hour before the lockdown, this couple just rushed their wedding so they could get married just before the 8 p.m. Um, oh. deadline, you know. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. You're right. We should share our positive experiences um, and uh, I guess uh, everyone's doing the best they can. Uh, yeah. I want to bring you back to a little bit before where you said, you know, uh, all these uh, effects uh, of the vaccines usually, uh, you know, in the since the 60s, we can see that it was happening in the first few months, if anything was happening. 
And um, I guess with our vaccine rollout program being a little slower than the rest of the world, it also gave us an opportunity to see any effects, uh, whether it be in Australia or around the world. Um, and uh, maybe that's one positive we can take out of that when we're uh, making our decisions. That, you know, that that is certainly, you know, people respond to, to different, um, you know, respond in different ways. And for some people... Seeing data is is really important because, you know, I can say to you a vaccine is safe, you know, but people will think that I have an agenda um, to to promote vaccination. But, you know, I'm, you know, also mindful that, you know, if I said my um, statement with, you know, some statistics behind it, that will also help with with some people, but not everybody. And so, Mm. you know, it, it is about having a range of, Different approaches to to working with um you know and communicating to the to the community and 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 making sure in the end that all of the resources are accessible that they are you know within our reach that they are on websites where you don't have to scroll through pages and pages of you know, I mean, you know documents. So to get many to. so many websites have translated material on there. Okay, so and this translated material is for people who need the information in their language because, you know, they might not speak English or their English might not be as strong. But even just to find, to navigate through those websites, to find those translated material, you know, I don't know how many things you have to click to get to the actual document and then you're lucky if the document is a new document, if the link isn't broken. I mean... How, how are we going to solve this issue? I mean, with all due respect to everyone out there, especially within governments and, and uh, you know, policymakers, it, it's great that you're doing this, but it just, for me, it just sounds like you're ticking a box, but you have, mm-hmm. you know, are people actually accessing this information? We have That's no idea. Question. You know, most people in my experience are getting their information from um, uh, their country of origin. Yeah. You know, they might be watching a cable tv internet tv and they they watch a lot of news and uh, information sessions not necessarily that's made in this country for the population of this country but from their country of origin and uh, you know i think that's that's in a way our fault for not being able to have that information accessible to them and oh, each country's goodness. information relates to that country. Yes, there is general information about COVID-19 and vaccines, but I'm pretty sure there are things that are particularly important and special for this country. Thus, information has to be made here to be given to these people, right? If I heard that one time, I've heard it over 70 times, um, with every interview that I did with community stakeholders and community leaders, they all said to me, Holly, you know, the the nobody listens to the local news. You know, even some of the SBS translated um, news channels, you know, why listen to that when I can just stream it from my my country of origin and get it up to date and um, and, and get it presented by someone who I'm familiar with and comfortable with. And so, you know, I think that is certainly something that we have perhaps not sufficiently addressed, that we could be... um, priming the community more that, you know, they are hearing, you know, news from overseas and it's, you know, it's going to raise questions um, about, you know, 
why is Australia using these vaccines compared to other vaccines, you know, and, and also about the rollout process for um, the vaccines. It may raise questions about the safety of the vaccines um, and also about the effectiveness of the vaccines. And I think that's important, um, that last point, because, you know, we, we are still getting that little bit of confusion about, you know, what are these um, vaccines doing and, and what's their role? And I think, you know, when I try to answer that now, it's about reminding people that, you know, these vaccines are doing such a great job in reducing um, severe disease and severe, you know, hospitalizations and also severe outcomes while in hospital. And a great fact I came across the other day was that um, in um, a, a study of um, uh, intensive care units in the United States, um, of the patients who had COVID in those settings, 97% of them were unvaccinated people. Wow. So the vaccinated people who may still get COVID are getting such a mild disease that it's not sending them to hospital. And, you know, they're not having the severe outcomes, severe, which is, the, you know, the terminology that we're, we're looking to measure the impact of these vaccines on um, compared to their unvaccinated counterparts. And so that is that is critical. Both vaccines are doing a great job on that. What they're also doing, um, and there was some recent research out just this week that shows that these vaccines are also doing a great job in reducing transmission you know, not at the levels that maybe we see in other vaccines, and that's okay. These, you know, this is what we're going to live with for a while. But they are actually, what we what we found is actually reducing what we call the viral load. There you go, a bit more jargon to add to our collection. <laughs> is, how much, is that how in much, here? I, I'll, I'll have to check that. I'll, is that in here? I'll, I'll make myself a note, add viral load. And... Um, what that means is the you know the the amount of virus that you have in your body, and so when you have high viral loads, you know every time you sneeze, these viruses are just coming out, you know, out of your nose, out of your mouth, you know, all over your hand, you know, you're, you're just shedding it. So when you reduce your viral load in your body, you may not then spread it to as many people. So at the moment, if you're unvaccinated and you have COVID. We think that you may be spreading the virus to about six to nine other people around you. So if we reduce the amount of virus that you have by getting vaccinated, you then may only spread that to two other people, which mm. is great because we can then shut that down. It takes the pressure off the contact traces because we know those two people. Mm. We can then help to reduce the burden and the pressure on hospitals. But importantly, hopefully those two other people are vaccinated too, which means for them they may, they may just feel something like a bit of a cold or they may be even what we call asymptomatic, so they don't have any sort of known um, symptoms. They don't feel like a fever. They don't feel like they've got a sore throat or a cough or any of them. Um, you know, and so in this is this is what we've got to get to. And this is where the the the, the um, encouragement is to get everyone vaccinated because we may still see 
COVID around, but we could see COVID around in such such a different way that, you know, we have seen with other respiratory viruses. Mm. Yes, they are out there, but because we've got that protection, we put a, you know, we put a, we hammer them on the head and they just can't do the damage that, you know, the, the virus could do if you're unvaccinated. And that's what we need to talk to when we talk about effectiveness and, and kind of remind people that there are different things that these vaccines are doing um, and that if we still have a bit of COVID around after, you know, we've got 80% of our population vaccinated and especially all of our vulnerable people vaccinated, that we are, you know, we're going we're gonna to be in a great position. I've always wanted to ask this question, and now I've got someone, uh, you know, of your uh, knowledge that I think I'm going to get a straight answer from. Um, So this vaccination, this particular vaccine, you know, when I was in Turkey, I got the TB shot and I just missed out on the smallpox. My sister got one. I didn't get one because it was cured. Um, So is this something that we need to have every year, like the flu shot, or do we have it once? And or in this case, let's say two doses, and then that's it. We don't have to worry about it. Is are we going to? Is this going to be a part of our yearly vaccination routine? That's a really good question, and we will need to see what happens with time. You know, smallpox was very different because smallpox, who it um, who it lived in, and how it transmitted was very very different. So we were able to put a big block between the transmission and stop it spreading. This virus acts in a different way and it can and it can live in animals and it can live in us and it's mm. okay, you know, out floating in the air, you know, and so we need to treat this, you know, differently. And so whether or not we get to needing um, what we're firstly calling booster shots. So this this language, this word will start to, to come into everyone's um you know, what they're hearing and and reading. And this is um, where the suggestion is that even within maybe a year, we might need to give everybody one more more vaccine to just help the body increase again the the Mm. level of protection or immunity that they they have. Um, And that's okay. You know, we routinely um, give kids these booster shots as well. So they may receive a vaccine at age one and two, and then at age five they get another booster to try and just help their body, and that then gives them lifelong immunity. Even with adults, you know, back in the day you used to get a a tetanus shot every 10 years. Mm. Yellow fever would only last, you know, X amount of time. That was very, very short. You know, you'd have to get it, you know, and, and now they've changed that language because and, and the recommendations because new findings have come along. And so I think, you know, we may need to have a booster. Whether or not it then goes into a space of needing to receive it every year with your flu vaccine, every five years, every 10 years, this will be what we'll, we'll continue to look at and, you know, the modelling will be done, the, you know, the, the drug tr- studies will be done, um, and we will really look at the epidemiology, so the numbers of cases and, and how they're, you know, what populations are being affected to see whether it is needed. What we may find down the track, it's a vaccine that becomes recommended when you get to a certain age or when, you know, if you're 
health status changes and you become um, maybe immunosuppressed or you have a chronic health condition, mm. maybe it will be then targeted groups that we need to continue to, to protect um, in, and, and see what happens. It's also going to depend on what this virus does. So, you know, in, in other situations with this particular family of viruses, you know, some of them have just disappeared, you know, and this is what happened in 2003. Um, and then we have this other, you know, part of the family with MERS in, in the Middle East where once in a while it keeps kind of popping up, having a few more cases and then, you know, disappearing again. So this virus, this family of viruses are very strange. Um, and whether or not this one, like, wants to kind of move in and be a permanent family member with us, you know, I think we'll have to we'll have to see what the, you know, the crazy uncle wants to do down the track. But um, certainly other family members of this particular virus family have um, have acted in, in very different ways. So it might also say, look, I've had enough. Thanks very much. Sayonara. I'm out of here. I've, I've done enough damage. <laughs> nice nice so knowing you. See you later. He's hoping. One could, one could hope that, um, yeah, this virus, you know, gets, gets the signal that we've had enough of it. You know, pack your bags. Disappear, please. That's going to be one massive farewell party, I assure you. <laughs> Never. That's, um, wouldn't that be lovely? And something to, you know, and, and that is, you know, again, what we should be motivating it, but also that, you know, we need to be realistic. So we need to be realistic that we, you know, certainly we've done two, almost two hard years with it, not quite two, but we're getting there closer. Um, and, you know, the vaccines are playing a key role in shifting us to the next phase, certainly getting us to a, to a, new, to a new space with this virus. I don't think it means that we have seen the end of mask use. Um, I think we, you know, we we are already seeing in the US that there's, you know, some need for masks. We may still need to see um, the use of of um, isolation, so people staying at home mm. if they, you know, they've been exposed or, or quarantine if they think they've been exposed. Um, and you know we 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 still got to no, negotiate how travel's going to go and and so this this will be part of our part of our conversations part of what government needs to to work on and decide you know for for for, for a year a couple of years we'll have to wait and see but you know we 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 know how to wear a mask now we know when to use it we know how to use it and that's great you know people are really good with needing to social distance when they need to. And so, you know, we've got those strategies down pat. We've got this toolkit, vaccines, plus these other public health measures that probably we're going to continue to use for, for, for the next, for the near future. Yeah, well, I guess the Homo sapiens uh, ability to adapt and its resilience is the reason why it's been, you know, one of the longest living mammals, I guess. We have survived pandemics in the past. We will get through this one. Let me bring you back to the glossary. Um, how was it developed? Who was involved? Let's give some kudos to the people that were involved. Oh, look, I'd love to give a big shout out to um to everyone. And I'm just going to get my list so I don't forget everybody. So, of course, um, as mentioned, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to give a big shout out to Lisa Woodland, New South Wales Multicultural Health Communication Service um, for really kind of spearheading you know the the translation component of 
of the work. Um, the development was was calling on colleagues um, and, you know, and, and from both the immunisation side of things and the multicultural health side of things. So um, Dr Kylie Quinn from Remit University um, and Dr Sabira Shrithka from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance as long as well as Associate Professor uh, Chris Blythe from um, Telethon Institute in WA were really, you know, the the, the eyes on it from the immunisation side of things and and they're all experts in in vaccines and, and vaccination. Um, beyond that, um, a big shout out to Vicky Jacobson, who is at the Refugee Health Network up in Queensland. Uh, she was instrumental in bringing together um, other uh, um, uh, colleagues that she works with, um, NATI accredited translators from the Refugee Health Network. Um, um, I'd also like to give a big shout out to the Health Literacy Lab here in Sydney, um, and Carissa Bonner, who, who works there, she was able to um, actually test the glossary to make sure that it um, was at the um, correct reading level mm-hmm. um, for the, the population that we were um, focused on. Of course, all graduates were a big help here too in really pulling me up and saying, oh, Holly, you know, we've, we've got to, to change up this language or this framing of the, the different terms. And also Dr Nadia Shavers, who also was great in just sending me text messages and saying, Holly, this isn't working yet. Keep keep going um, with it all. So there was a, a fabulous team um, on the ground who helped with um, with putting it together um, and to everybody who has passed it on or spread the news about the glossary, then you know, <clears throat> sorry, you know, I, I thank you too because we we want it to we want it to be useful. We don't want it to just be sitting on a website and just. I know <laughs> that's the main thing, and you know, certainly I've passed it on to colleagues overseas too to see whether it can get some traction um, internationally as well. That's great. Look, we'll I think we'll all do all we can to get it out there. Um, just want to ask you a question in particular uh, about uh, translations. Now, as you know, with NATI, there are different levels of certification um, and uh, recognition as well for uh, languages that aren't being tested. Um, and uh, depending on the language, there are sometimes translators and interpreters out there that are unaccredited. And uh, this is simply because there are just no certified or recognised practitioners in these languages, okay? This is reality. Um, And even among the certified practitioners and recognised practitioners, many different terms might be used uh, by different practitioners. Now, this is why I believe that glossaries play a vital role in standardising that information and preventing possible ambiguities when translating and interpreting. What are your thoughts on enforcing the use of glossaries? Let's say this particular one, the COVID-19 glossary, Um, you know, enforcing it upon government organisations who commission translations and then language service providers who actually um, give the translations out to the practitioners to say, this is the language that must be used, okay? Whatever information that you're disseminating that needs to get translated, here's the glossary you must use this. 
And then that gets given to organisations. The organisation gives that glossary to the language service provider who then gives it to the translator and says, here's your glossary, you have to use it. Otherwise, you know, it just, again, it's a choice whether, first of all, does the translator even know that this exists? Trust me, so many, you're going to have about 12, maybe 15,000 certified and recognised translators, plus on top many unaccredited ones. You know, first of all, are they going to have this information that the glossary exists? Secondly, are they going to choose to use it? Can we can we actually make it mandatory to say you have to use this glossary when you're disseminating information about COVID-19 vaccinations? Look, there's a, that's an interesting point raised. You know, to make something a mandate, um, you know, it, it does change the, the sentiment around it. You know, if the glossary um, wasn't, you know, if it, if people weren't accepting of it, then to make it a mandate would would really um, go against what we what the purpose of was introducing it because it would be resented. And you know, if people don't feel comfortable with it, then you know they're going to find workarounds anyway. Um, and so instead of going with a mandate, what we really want to do then is is to work on supporting them to use it. And so, again, making sure that they understand that it's available and the the reason why it was developed, um, making sure that they understand who was part of the development process, so they understand, you know, that they it's they trustworthy, trust, yeah, that it 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 was developed with those who you know work on on both sides of of the coin, mm-hmm. um, and to to make it as easy to use as possible. And so, you know, as part of the kind of um, uh, process of, of kind of understanding the needs of the community, you know, when people started to talk about this kind of gap in, in how to talk about COVID vaccines, you know, and this idea the glossary came through, you know, many people commented about, well, wouldn't it be lovely to have it, um, you know, via an app and make it, you know, at your fingertips. Mm. And so, you know, we agree with that and, and you know, we would love it to be as accessible as possible. You know, the, the challenge was, of course, navigating funding opportunities mm, and, and support and, you know, we were able to land on having it online on a website um, and to have it translated. And so, you know, this may be an ongoing evolution of the glossary if it needs, you know, if it becomes something not just about COVID vaccines but about vaccination in, in general, you know, maybe that's where we could help with with trend, putting it into a into an app. There are certainly other examples um, of glossaries um, being used. I think that the best one is that one available for helping with jargon around the kind of um, national disability um, scheme. I know there's also <laughs> that one. definitely needs a glossary. Oh, I think there is a glossary. Yeah, yeah, I know. there is. It's just a field that, that definitely benefits from a having of, a glossary. Yeah. A lot of jargon there too. And then there's also the ones for helping people navigate um, terms around law and, and around... Yeah, there's um, one called Legal Literate. Yeah, um, Legal. Yeah, so that's, that's a very, very good app actually, yeah. Yeah. So we've got some precedents around, you know, those those glossaries and how they've been used. And so, you know, what can we learn from that to apply here? Um, but certainly, you know, maybe it is about going back and advocating for some more funding um, to, to to turn this into something that can be on your fingertips via, via an app. 
Uh, well, we'll do everything that we can to share it with everyone and, you. Uh, you know, lobby with the, the powers be because, you know, it, it's the funding is an investment, isn't it? it? It might be, a I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars today with potential of billions and billions of dollars of uh, income, you know, yeah. that might not be lost. So, um, yes, we definitely will do our best. Now, on that, how can people access the glossary? Um, and as you know, like you said, glossaries evolve um, and, you know, they get updated. Uh, if anyone has suggestions either for a correction or for a new term or definition, who can they contact? They certainly can check out the website versus via the New South Wales Multicultural Health Communication Service. And, and I'll make sure that the website is sent through to, to add that um, to uh, with this um, webinar. I'll put um, it into the description, okay, oh, definitely, so um, they can just click people, onto it. If people have any any um, uh, questions or they ha would like to raise any um, issues with the glossary, oh, we are all ears about hearing that and, and also about, you know, if there's anything in the language translations especially where the words are still not quite um, working, please, um, one, via that email, you will see my email address there. It's very transparent that we want to hear from community and keep this a, a live document. And, and I think I'm really going to go back and add viral load. I've written it yep, down. Put it on there. There we go. We're saying it evolves and uh, just today another new, uh, new term. Um, now, uh, we were saying that um, people can just email you directly. I'll put your email address in the description as well. Um, and I guess uh, going back to my question about making it mandatory, we could we could make it available with the jobs, I guess, and say, well, we recommend that here's the glossary, you know, here's the glossary. And that's, that's another way of getting the word out there, especially to practitioners who will be hopefully using this tool to aid with their translations and interpreting as well. That would be great. If we could make it, you know, uh, right at the fingertips that it's the link is there um, when you, when you organize, you know, when governments at all at any level then are organizing translations around this um this vaccine and and certainly also amongst the community organizations themselves many of whom are doing their own translations that um that the, the, this 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 document's ready to go all right everyone watching out there now you know about this document you have no excuse get it out there <laughs> thank you holly Thank you so much for your time today and no all the best with getting the glossary out there and to those communities who are in much need of non-ambiguous and good information about the COVID-19 vaccine. No, happy to talk and thank you everyone for your time. And thank you very much. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe and uh, turn on notifications. Today I was with uh, Associate Professor Holly Seal. Thank you very much and uh, all the best to you. Mm -hmm.